Hello and welcome. I'm Dr Barry Harker and you're listening to Life Learnings. My guest today is Milton McFarlane. Milton spent 17 years teaching for the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Papua New Guinea, Bougainville and the Solomon Islands. Milton has some amazing stories to tell, so my conversation with Milton will extend over two hours. The second hour will be broadcast next week. In the first hour, Milton will relate some of the stories of his life and work in the South Pacific in the 1960s and 1970s. With his wife Betty, Milton went to Boli on Musau Island, north of the mainland of Papua New Guinea in 1961. One of his duties there, apart from teaching, was to run a hospital. With only rudimentary training as a medical aide and some helpers with similar training, Milton provided simple medical services to local villagers. Welcome, Milton. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Milton, not long after you arrived on Bolu, you had to deal with your first serious medical emergency. Tell me about it. It happened at 12 o'clock at night. There was a knock on my back door, and I had to go out and have a look to see what was going on. There were two native men's there, men there who asked me to go down to the uh, hospital, which was about a half a kilometre away from our house, and will I go down and see this girl who had been burnt in a fire during the night. So I went down and I saw this girl and, well, I didn't know she was a girl at the time because she was burnt around her neck, on her face and down onto her arms and down onto her chest. Now, what had happened was she had been in bed and she was sleeping on a mat and she had a mosquito net and beside that, inside that net, there was a little bottle of kerosene with a wick in it. And that was the fire burning to keep her warm. Now, during the night, somehow or other, she knocked that bottle over and the mosquito net, it got onto fire. And that's what burnt her. It all fell down onto her. And then they brought her over. It took about four or five hours to walk across from Catalusai and over the mountain and down to our place would take her at least four hours, five hours to get there, carrying this girl in the in a sack or in a and with a pole, like a bed. So I got to work on the poor girl, and I worked on her, and we scraped the um, stuff off her face, and it was all hanging down around her face and around her chest, and we took gave her penicillin injections. I put stuff onto her as much as I could and bandaged her up and she stayed in the hospital for some days. After that it had finished and by this time it was daylight and I went back up to the house and fortunately the radio was working because if we didn't have a battery we couldn't have a 3ABN working our battery on our radio. And I rang the hospital in Kaviang and I asked for the doctor and I told him what had happened and he said, all right, you've done as, as well as you can do under the circumstances. We'll send the Theresa May, which is a government boat, out tonight and we'll get there in the morning. And I said, well, if you get there before sunrise, you wait there and we'll send a boy out in the canoe and we'll show you where to come in through the reef. And so they did that and they took Francis back to Caviang uh, and uh, fixed her up her mother and her daughter and her sister went back with her. Then she came back and she went back over to the village. And then 12 months or two years later, 
she came over to my school at Bolu, and she was a grade five there, and then she went to grade six, and I taught her. Then she went down to Kambubu, and she became a teacher, and after all the years of study, she came back and was a teacher at one of our village schools at Catalusi. We praise God for having her healed and became a teacher for the church. Mm, that's a good story, isn't it? It's got mm. a nice outcome to it. Could have been uh, much more serious than that, though, couldn't it? It could have been. I mean, I didn't know she was a girl until I got daylight. We only had little lamps there. We didn't have any electricity. We had electricity for one year out of eight years. Mm. We had kerosene. Mm. Musau is a very beautiful tropical island, but it has crocodiles. Tell me about Joseph and the crocodile. Joseph was out fishing, and he used to go out every Friday to go fishing for his family. And he would call out, crocodile, crocodile, puk pookie, kissing me, finish. Kissing me, finish means that he is being taken by a crocodile, or because puk puk means crocodile. And so this particular day, a crocodile did get, or a puk puk did get, Joseph. And the boys around the village or around the area laughed and they said, ho, ho, this is not true. He's only playing games again. We won't worry about him today. But this was for real. He was in trouble. This book book had grabbed him by the legs and he was really in trouble. And so after a little while, they came around and there they saw, well, before that, he was trying to get away from the crocodile or from the puk-puk. And so he put his hand up over his eye and tried to stop him and then he'd go down under the water with the puk-puk taking him down to try and drown him. Then he'd come back up and take a gulp of air and then he'd go down again and he'd come up again. But this time he put his thumb into the eye of the puk-puk and he then and tried to get the book book opened his mouth and he came up and Joseph took his spear and he threw it down the neck of the book book. Now the book book didn't appreciate that at all and he let go with his arms, with his legs and he swam away. By this time the boys around the corner, including myself and my wife Betty were over there on the island for a weekend came around to see what was going on. And there they saw the crocodile swimming away with the spear sticking out of his mouth. And poor old uh, Joseph was in a bad way. So they brought him round to where I was, and there in the canoe was this body with a lot of blood all over him and a lot of marks on his leg. So we then couldn't do much there. So I said to the boys, you take him over in the canoe over to Bolu, which was about three kilometres away, and I will take my boat and Betty will come with me and one of my boys with, had the boat with me. And we went over to prepare for his coming over to the hospital. When he arrived, I discovered that Ruth, who was our nurse at the time, had gone home for the weekend so that left me with some native boys there to help this boy. So we put stitches in him. I don't know how many we put in now, but there was quite a number of stitches. It was over 30 on his knee to start with, 
and then down his leg and up and up on his thigh. And then on the backside, he had two big bites where the crocodile or the puk-puk had put his teeth in, but we didn't worry about um, stitching them up because they, we couldn't, there, wasn't, there wasn't enough there to, to stitch up, just the two little holes or two holes there. We then went, gave him, filled him up with penicillin again, and then I went back up to the radio at the home, my home, and it was working again. Fortunately, the Lord was with us there again. Again, we rang up the doctor at the Kaviang Hospital. They again sent a boat out that night, and we sent a boy out to bring him in, and then he took the boy into Kaviang. He said, I couldn't do any more for him than what you've done. You did a very good job out there with, under the circumstances. And in a few weeks, we came back, and he would never, ever call out wolf or puk puk. He kissed him, me finish again. Hmm. That story reminds us that it's not a good idea to cry wolf. <laughs> you have another crocodile story. This time, it's as equally as serious as the one with Joseph. Tell me about Job's experience with the crocodile. Job was one of our teachers down at the village school at Loma Canara, which would be about three or four kilometres from our station. He had been out fishing on a Friday morning to get fish for his, the lunch for the Sabbath because Seventh-day Adventists, they didn't, go to, they didn't do any work or fishing on, on the Saturday. So he did his fishing, and as he was fishing, he noticed there was a, a shadow above him, and he wondered what it was. Then he realised that it was more than a shadow because he felt two arms go around his body. That was the arms of a crocodile. Now, if you get a crocodile under, under the, uh, on top of you and he puts his two arms around you or his legs around you, you know you're in serious trouble. Job, Job then decided he would push himself up off the, off the um, ground or the bottom of the ocean there where he was or with his feet, pushed himself up and he got a mouthful of air and then the crocodile or the puk-puk pushed him down again. And so this happened for about 10 minutes up and down, up and down. But all the time when Job was getting near the bottom of the uh, ocean or the beach there, he would push his foot down and push himself towards the beach. By this time, the village people realized that something was terribly wrong with Job out there in the water. And they were watching and they were praying that he would be saved as he was a very good teacher. So he's also a married man with children. Now, eventually... Now, he, why didn't they go to help him? They were, was, it, was there a reason why they didn't go to help him? They were frightened to. They were too frightened. What, was, what would be the likely consequence? If, they had a, if they'd gone out and disturbed the crocodile, he would have just crunched him hmm. and he would have been dead. Okay. They wouldn't go near him that way, no. But they were praying. I tell you what, there must have been about the whole village there on the beach watching him, and they they couldn't do anything for him until he let go, until they the crocodile let him go, and he had his feet on the ground, and that's when he pushed himself forward. So at this stage, he's getting closer to the beach. Yes, yes. Okay, let's, let's go for the rest of the story. <laughs> All right, now, so when he, got, he could get his feet onto the... Uh, down onto the sand, he would push himself forward 
a little bit, as much as he could, and then the crocodile would go up again and then he'd get it down, he'd go until he could get his feet right on the the surface of the, or down near the shallow water. And with that, he took his spear and he pushed him up into his stomach, which the crocodile didn't like, let him go and he went one way and Job went the other way. And it was an answer to prayer that that boy survived that accident. I was, that was Friday. On Sabbath, I was taken, I went down to Loma Canara and I took the church service and I saw Job and he told me that story and we all said, praise God for protecting him from that crocodile. Did he have any injuries? Yes, he had a few injuries. He had marks all over his stomach where the crocodile had clawed him with his feet. But other than that, he wasn't too bad. But he'll have marks for the rest of his life. The crocodile was trying to drown him. Yes. They go down and they swing you around and they roll you around so that air comes out of your stomach, out of your lungs. And that's what they do. That's what they're trying to do, trying to get him down. But every time he went down, he had feet on the ground and he'd push himself up again. So the water was relatively shallow. Yes, yes. That probably saved him. Oh, yes. But every time he hit the ground, he would push himself with his feet a little bit, only maybe a foot or 12 inches or whatever. And so then he would push himself forward a little bit further and further and further and closer and closer to the beach. And that's when he was able to get away from the crocodile. Now, you nearly had a brush with a crocodile yourself. (laughs) Very true. Tell me about it. My job as a principal of the school was more than that. I was in charge of 15 village schools as well. And so every three months, my wife and I would walk around the island and visit the 15 schools. This particular day, I had to go to a school that was very close to ours, which was about three kilometres away, and that's close to where we were, some of the schools were. And we went down, I went down, and I had prayer with the two boys that were with me in the canoe. We always prayed before we went anywhere, and we always prayed thank you when we got home. This particular day, we were paddling away. We had about a 10-foot wooden canoe, the one boy in the front, one boy at the back, and me in the centre. We got round to the village of Mullicutt, and there I spoke to the teacher and I spoke to the students and we examined them and talked to them and we had prayer with them and worship with them and so on. And then about dinner time I decided it was time to go home and we'd better go back to my school because I had a lot of work to do at volume. So as we were leaving, we were going around this, the peak and this out of the bay and around and we came to a place where there was a lot of mangroves and the boys suddenly put their hand up to their mouth and telling me to be quiet because I talk a lot as usual. And so I stopped talking and they pointed and there I looked not too far away from me, two big red eyes. Oh, and I thought, oh, it's only a log at the time. And he said, and the boy said, no, Emmy, puk puk finish. That means there was a puk puk there. And so... I sat there very still. I never moved a muscle. I sat there and those, we just glided past. The boys didn't do any more paddling. They just glided past. And that crocodile was watching me and I was watching it because I didn't want to have it be his dinner that day. And so when we got past, 
And the boy said, right, well, now let's go. So we paddled, the boys paddled, and I put my two hands in the water, and I was paddling too. But, boy, that was an answer to prayer that that crocodile or that puk-puk saved us that particular day. That's the closest I've ever been to a puk-puk, except when I've been in a zoo with them somewhere, but I had a, pay, a, a, a fence between me and them. It's about a three-metre crocodile. That uh, it was about three, about three metres long. And the you're, tail, only, you're only a couple of metres away from this? No. Our boat was there, and it was about that far away from us, the, the mouth. So the mouth of this crocodile is just a few inches away from the edge of, exactly. the, edge of the canoe. Exactly. And you've got about three inches of clearance no. on it. An inch. An inch of clearance That's on, all. on the canoe. Yes, I was a big fellow then. Or well, not big, but I mean, I was long and tall and, you know, so a lot was, heavier than the boys. So that could have been pretty nasty. It would have been very nasty. I wouldn't have been here today. No way. I would have been dead. Now, we're about to hear a story about another unpleasant experience you had with a sea creature, only this time it's a barracuda that you caught. Tell me about that. With a hectic sort of a program that I was uh, working on up at Volu, I was the principal of the big school and I had done, we did gardens and we did nursing and we did everything imaginable. My wife and I were the only white people on the whole island. And on a Friday, we had school on Sunday to Thursday, and on Fridays, we used to have a day off. And that's when the students would do their preparation and do their cooking, go there, do fishing, so they could have food for the Sabbath or Saturday. This particular day, I went, I went fishing on Friday morning. I loved fishing. That was my outlet from the school. And I took a boy with me, Romerty, and it was a nine-foot boat with these two-and-a-half-horsepower seagull engine on the back, and I had my dog Skippy. Everywhere I went, Skippy went with me, except to school. She would never come to school with me. And so she was sitting on the front, and we had two lines. Rumerty had one line, it was about a 60-pounder, and I had one that was a 100-pounder. We didn't go for small lines. We went for heavy ones because we wanted to get big fish. If we ever one quarter fish, we would pull that line in very quickly so we wouldn't get tangled up around the motor or around the thing, the line. And so Romerty pulled his fish in, I know, yes, and I had a big tug on the end of mine. And I thought, this is a big one. And sure enough, it was a big one. He had his line in, and then I started pulling mine in, and eventually we got it in. Now, the boat would have been about four feet wide at the middle of the boat. And when we brought it in, the, that fish went from one side of the boat to the other side. And then we couldn't get the hook out. It was a big hook about six inches long. It was a red one with two big hooks on the end of it. And we couldn't get that hook out of his mouth. Eventually, we got it out. But as he did, as we got it out, he shook his head and it hit me on my right leg. Now, on the right leg, it's right on the shin and there's very little flesh there, or very little anything there, except the, the bone just underneath the skin. And that he put in a, quite a big bite. He had three bites on me. And Rumerty got hold of the spear, which was a 3.8 rod, sharpened, and he smashed it right through the head of the, of the um, fish and almost went through the bottom of the boat. We just see the little bit underneath the boat where it didn't go right through. If he had gone through that, we would have been, wouldn't have been here today. Anyway, 
I took off my shirt and I wrapped it around my um, leg. It was bleeding. And I said, well, we better go home now, Romerty, because Maram, that was Betty, um, she'll be very worried about me. So when I got home, I said, you put the boat away, please. You know how to do it and, and fix up the engine. And I hobbled up the, up the hill to bed. Well, she took fright and she said, what have you been doing? And that's a brand new shirt you've got on. Look at it. Because I'd torn it in pieces to wrap it around. She said, I can't do anything about it, Milton. You better go down to the hospital. So I went down to the hospital, down to the clinic, and there was Ruth down there. And she took one look at me and she said, oh, Master. She said, she used to call me Master. And she said, this is going to be bad news for you because we don't have any anaesthetic. I said, I know, because I do all the paperwork for the hospital and I've been sent away for an order and it hasn't come because the seas are too big to get the boats out. And so she sat me on the OB bed board, uh, bed. It goes up in a kind of a banana. And inside that uh, clinic was a window on the left-hand side. There was a big door in front of me and on the other side of the wall was another window. And she started to sew up my leg. Now, you can imagine sewing up a, a wound or three wounds on my leg where there's no flesh or muscle. It was pretty painful. And then I heard a funny noise. Ooh, ah, ooh, ah. And this went on for quite a while, and I opened my eyes, and there on the window on the side of me, it was full of black faces and fuzzy white hair. Then I looked at the door. It was jam-packed with people. Then I looked at the other window, and it was the same. The people over in the village at Palakau, which was only a little way away, they had heard that I was in trouble. And they came flying over to find out what was wrong with me. And so they, I said to them, what's going on? What's going on? What are you yelling ooh-ah for? I'm the one that's in pain. And then they said these words, you have red blood. And I said, and what do you think I've got? They said, you should have white blood because you are a white man. Now, they'd never seen a missionary or a white man ever before bleeding. There had been accidents before, but the missionaries before me, their wives were nurses and they would do up, fix up their, the wounds on the, their husbands. And so there it was and went round the island and in a few days... Everybody knew that McFarlane had red blood. Milton, you had to take a trip in the Malalangi, which was the mission boat, from Musa Island to Lu Island, which is near Manus Island, so it's quite a stretch of water, and it became a pretty harrowing trip. Would you like to tell us about that? Yes, it was one of the, the worst trips I've ever been in my life. We were asked to go from our island to take some ministers and the, some elders and Pastor Gooey Bow and, and so on from our place over to Manus Island to a, another little island called Low Island where there was a school called Pisic, and that was another one of our mission schools. Now, this trip was supposed to leave on a Thursday and we were supposed to be over there by Friday evening. But as we were about to leave Musa or leave Bolu, we a storm came up and we thought well, it was only going to be a short storm, it'll be okay, but it turned out to be, we thought, a three-day storm. But it didn't. It was a five-day storm, a five-day 
time. Now, we didn't realise that at the time, and so Salopan said, well, no, we won't go this morning, we'll go a little bit later when the wind dies down. He was the captain where everybody was on board and we said our goodbyes to our friends and I said goodbye to Betty and we had our normal prayer and uh, away we sailed. But then we had to come back again a little bit because the wind changed and then we had to go again later in the afternoon. Now this time we went out past the island and everything was beautiful until we got about three or four kilometres off the island and then the wind started to blow and the sea started to come up higher and Salopan said to me, who was the captain, he said, Mr McFarlane, he said, we're in for a five-day blow. And I thought, oh, no. And I said, we're going to be in for some pretty rough weather. And he said, yes, it's going to be the worst. I think we've been in for a long, long time. So the men on the back, we tied them on to all the posts at the back, round the back of the, the uh, ship or the boat. And they were all tied on, and by that time they were pretty sick and they'd only been there half an hour with this wild sea. Now I was in the bunk, there's a bunk there inside the cabin, and I was six foot three, and I put in a bunk was only six foot or thereabouts, and I jammed my knees down tight and I sat in that, on that position for the next 20-odd hours. There, on the floor, there was a, a man with his a, a husband and a wife and a baby. They were teachers, and they were going back to Manus for their holiday. The poor baby had rolled back and forth between the two of those the parents all night. They hung on to it, but they survived. We all survived. Nobody died that night. I tell you, if you ever want to go into a rocking ship, we were on it. The boat would go up the front and then the bow would go bang and then the propeller would come out the back and it'd go brrrr at the back out of the water and then it would come down and then up would go to the front and down she'd go again. We lost our, our second anchor that was on top. All the awnings on the top of the boat were gone. The radio signals were gone. We couldn't contact anybody at all. We were in the wild, wild seas and we were there all night, up and down, up and down, up and down. I tell you, it was the worst experience I've ever had in my life and I can still see it in my mind tonight or now. Anyway, we did arrive in the morning when the clouds kind of settled down a bit and they, the waves settled down a little bit. We saw a in the afternoon, instead of being at... Pisic, we were now still a long way from there. And Friday night, we saw an island ahead and Salapan said, I'm going to that island to stay there for Friday night. And so he knew the island. We couldn't get ashore quick enough. Our legs were wobbly. We were sick, at least I wasn't, but the men were sick. We hadn't had any food for the whole time we were on board that boat. And we found a, a empty hut and I tell you what, we had something to eat, which was some rice and some fish that they had, and we went to bed and we slept like a log. But it seemed to be we were still rock and roll because we were still in our dreams. Next morning, we went back onto the boat. We sailed into Pisic at about one o'clock in the afternoon. We saw all the people coming out of church. It was finished. The meetings were all over. We didn't have one meeting with any of those people. 
and they call out, and we say, we'll call out to them, we are the Musau people. No, 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 the Musau has got a boat, it's a white boat. I said, we've been through the worst storm we could ever imagine. And they couldn't believe it. And so we pulled in, and then we discovered that there was water coming into the, through the hull. When they uh, went down into the water, they started to sh- bucket it out because the pump wasn't working because it was full of debris. And so they were bailing the water out by the bucket. And they discovered when we got to Pesic that the sea had taken away some of the cork from underneath the wooden planks that were in the bottom of the boat on the hull. And that the Lord had saved us from drowning. He saved us from that terrible storm. And we were able to talk on the Pesic radio to my wife and tell her that I was safe and sound and that I would be home, I hoped, in a few days' time. But God again answered our prayers and brought us through that terrible, terrible storm. Yeah, it sounds like a horror storm, doesn't it? It was the worst thing. I've never been through one, anything like it in my life. Mm. It was terrible. Those poor people at the back, they were just tied on Pastor Guibau, Pastor Manavaki, all those pastors. If we'd gone down, we would have the whole of our mission from the North Island would have been gone. Milton, when you left Bolu in Musau to go to a new school at Rumba on Bougainville, you had an incident on your way to Amira Island where the boat was stuck on the reef. It was a pretty serious situation, but some quick thinking helped save the day. Tell me the story. Yes, we were due to leave early in the morning on the, on the Thursday morning with the idea that we would be in Kaviang Thursday night or early Friday morning. We could do our business that had to be done and then be on our way uh, on Sunday to go down to wherever we were going to. Anyway, this particular day... My our captain was. We all went aboard the boat, and uh, Bet was with us. All my f- belongings were on the boat, including my nine-foot boat and my engine and a whole lot of other stuff. It was all the whole boat was completely filled up with cargo, etc., etc. Because we were leaving Volue after eight years. Now, as we were going, we left. We had prayer and asked God to be with us on that trip and we thought it would be unadventurous and would not have any problems with it. But as we were going out of the leaving the wharf, uh, the captain was looking the other way, and he wasn't taking any notice of the two boys who were up on the front, and I was saying, go that way, go that way, don't go that way, go that way. And they pointed that way, go that way, go that way to the right. But he didn't watch, and he was going straight ahead, and whoops, we went straight up on the reef. Now, we were in deep trouble. That, the tide was running out very quickly and we were sitting on the reef and some men who were in a canoe behind us, they knew what was happening and they raced over or paddled over to the mangroves and chopped down some mangrove trees and came back and we, they held up the boat on both sides to stop it from going over on the side. If it had gone over, it would have been a catastrophe. We would have lost our all our belongings, and so on. And people could have died as a result of it. Now, the captain, he argued that it wasn't his fault and he was watching where he's going, but that wasn't the case. Now, when they put the, the tide went right out, we were sitting in one foot of water. It was only the main keel that was touching the, the reef and the rest of the boat was just sitting up there like, I don't know, well, I've got a photo of it at home somewhere. Now, we were sitting on the reef, and Beth and I said, well, we don't want to stay here. 
and we don't know how long we're going to be here for. And so we went in the dinghy with some of our schoolboys and schoolgirls that we're taking. We're taking a boy and a girl with us down to Roomba with us. And we paddled back to the school. The lights were working, so we went up and played volleyball ball in the, in the uh, school. And then we had a shower up there. We had one towel between the three of us or four of us. <laughs> and Bet went first, and then I went, and then the other kids, they went through and they, they dried themselves somehow or other. So after we'd finished that and we had a shower, then we went back onto the boat and the captain was not very happy with us going ashore, but that was the only thing we wanted to do. And then when the tide came in, and it came in fairly fast, then we were able to put an anchor out the back and put the engine in reverse and we pulled ourselves off the, the reef and then we proceeded to go over to Amira. Now we were supposed to be in Amira on the Thursday night. Now here we were now on the Friday afternoon getting into there, into Amira. So we had to stay the night and I tell you what, we didn't sleep on the boat that night. We were slept underneath, we took some mats and we slept underneath one of the sheds on, on the beach. It was after Sabbath on the Sunday. Then we set sail again for Kaviang, which was a good trip, and we arrived in Kaviang later that afternoon or later that night. Then that meant that we were now running several days late for poor old the president who wanted to do some work down the uh, eastern side of the island, of New Ireland. And we had, I had to go to the bank, and I was a banker at Musau. I did all the banking for them over there and I paid the wages and everything else over there. And uh, I had to go in and finish off the banking system, sign off my name that I wasn't a banker anymore, go to the shops and finish off our accounts. And then we went back on the boat and then we sailed down the, the northern side of New Ireland. We went to several islands with him, with me, his name was Venice Roy. And he, they came with me and with Bet at this time, she said, I'm not going on the boat anymore. I'm going to fly from Kaviang to Rabaul. Do you mind? I said, not at all. And the mission paid for that as well. So it took us two days or three days to get down there and go right around the, bottom, around the end of the island and then sail back up into uh, Rugen Harbour or into Rabaul. And there we had to transfer ship and go onto another boat or another ship that's similar to the Mullalungi to go down to Bougainville. Milton, when you arrived at Bougainville, there was a visit by the Duke of Edinburgh. Tell me about that. Yes, we were invited to take 13 students down from our school down to this particular place where the rest of the island was able to send some students as well. There must have been several hundred students there uh, all lined up for the Duke to come along. Now, very fortunately for us, our 12 or 13 students were in the front row and Betty and I were standing beside them. And he came along and he said, you are Seventh-day Adventists, aren't you? And the children looked at him and said, yes, how do you know? And he said, well, I've just been to Fiji. And he said, we've got children over there and they had the same uniforms and they were Seventh-day Adventists too, and they had the same uniforms. 
And so the children were very pleased about that. And then he said, are you always as clean as you are now? And he looked at me and I said, yes, when they're dressed up like this, they are. But when they're working in the gardens, they're a different story. Now, he shook hands with all of those people, with all our students, the 12 or 13 of them. He shook hands with myself and with Betty. And you know what? When we got back to school, those students didn't wash their hands for several days. They had spoken to the Duke of Edinburgh, and he was a number one man in their eyes. Your time in Bougainville has passed now, and you're going to Madana. This is in the early 1970s mm-hmm. in Papua New Guinea. And as you're flying into Lay with Pastor Colin Winch, the oil light came on on the right engine. Tell me about that. Well, there was another, another pilot piloting at the time, and as the Colin was on, on the left-hand side and the other pilot was on the right-hand side, and Colin let over and he turned that switch off and he killed or put that engine off. Now, I was sitting right behind him and I said, Whoa, what's going on? Are you having, you're having a practice on one engine? He said, No. He said, This is serious. He said, I'm not too sure what's happening, but the oil is gone. There's not very much oil in the engine. It could get very hot. We could have problems. So we're going to come in on one engine. Now, this put, was very frightening for me and for Betty. And uh, we sat there, and I had two dogs, by the way, in there, in the, in the uh, cabin with us, plus a, another lady and her children. And as we were flying in here, you'd hear him, uh, Colin, talking on the radio. We're coming in on one engine, and we've got problems. And when I looked down on the airport or the runway, there were fire engines and ambulances on the side of the road, on the side of the, the track there. And I was really getting a bit worried. And I tell you what, I was praying pretty hard, and I think Betty was doing the same. I'm not too sure about Colin, but I think he had his mind completely on that engine. And he came in on one engine, landed safely and perfectly. A problem happened that the oil had not been the thing on the top or the screw hadn't been, or the cap hadn't been put on properly the day before when it was serviced, and as a result, the oil was blowing out from that, and we were running on a dry engine. So the Lord again blessed us and protected us from that serious accident that could have happened. We'll go to a break now. When we come back, Milton will relate more stories from his time as a teacher for the Seventh Adventist Church in the South Pacific. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 3456. Our email address is radio at 3ABN that is radio at the number 3 ABN Australia, all one word, dot org dot au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc, PO Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales 2264 Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. 
If you've just joined us, I'm Dr Barry Harker and you're listening to Life Learnings. My guest is Milton McFarlane. Milton has been relating stories from his time as a teacher on Musau Island and Bougainville. We're going to hear some more of Milton's stories in the remainder of the program. The stories are now from Madana in Papua New Guinea and Better Karma in the Solomon Islands. Milton, one of the big issues you faced at Madana, southeast of Port Moresby, was snakes. Tell me about the time that Cathy was bitten by a snake near your house. Cathy was up at our house. She was one of my grade six girls, and she'd come up to see something up there and ask Mrs McFarland or Betty something that she'd been teaching her. And anyway, as she was running back down the hill from our place to her to the um, dormitory, she hit a little hole and she felt something bite her on the back of the leg. Of course, she yelled out and we raced down and the boys raced up from the school and Cathy had been bitten by a snake. Now, we weren't too sure what the snake was, but I think the snake got as much fright as Cathy did. However, we didn't find the snake, but we took hold of her, put a bandage around her and a, to- a thing to tighten up, a tourniquet, put her onto the back of the truck, the old Land Rover we had, which was very, very old, and we took her down to Kalawaka, which was seven miles away by a bad road, and then we had to put her into a boat, and then we had to carry her up to the hospital, which was again another kilometre up the hill, and we gave them and put her in the charge of a nurse, the doctor up there, and he worked on her and said, I'm going to keep her here for one night to make sure that everything is all right. But I think we were very lucky that the uh, snake only put a little bit of the fang into the back of her foot. It didn't go right in, so it didn't have a really serious bite. We brought Cathy home the next day, and she was quite well, and she went on and she went down to the school, down to high school, and she came back as a teacher later on in the years. Now, one of the reasons why you never wanted to go to Papua New Guinea was because you were afraid of snakes. Tell me about the time you thought you'd been bitten by a snake. We'd only been at, at um, Madana one few days, and I'd been down to worship with my wife, Betty, and with our house girl, Gwynnie, and I was walking back up the hill to our place, and I felt a nip on the back of my foot. I went into immediate shock thinking that it was a snake because we had heard of so many snakes in the area and I was terrified that I was not going to live the night. Anyway, we went up to the house and there we prayed and prayed and prayed that if it was the Lord's will, I would be saved from whatever had bitten me. Now, we had serum in the refrigerator, but I didn't know how to use it and so I didn't dare put it into my veins. We prayed that night and the next morning I woke up and I was awake and I said, thank you, Lord, I'm awake and I'm still saved. And it eventually turned out that it wasn't a snake, it was Skippy, my dog, who had given me a nip on the back of my foot. That must have been a pretty, uh, pretty stressful night, though. It was a very stressful night, a very stressful night. I don't think I slept the entire night and I don't think Betty did either. And I think the, the girls we had in the house were the same. They were very frightened that I was going to only been at the school for one or two days and here I was going to die and I hadn't even got done any teaching at that stage. Now there was another occasion involving a snake story where you were returning from the beach through the Madana plantation 
and you heard a voice telling you to go to the left and go down to the to go on the, the lower, lower road, lower on the lower road. Yes. Tell me about that. As we had been over to Scupiano to get some supplies off the boat and the Land Rover was really full of cargo. We had boxes and all sorts of things on it. And as I was driving along the road, this voice came into me. I heard, I heard it very distinctly, go on the lower road. Now, there were two roads going to Bolu, or not to Bolu, to Madonna, to where I, uh, we lived. And one was the normal one, and one was on the lower road that went down through the plantation. And this voice said it again, go on the lower road. So I thought, well, nobody's talking to me. And I asked the boys, no, no, we hadn't spoken. So then I knew it was an angel or somebody talking to me to go on the lower road, which I did. When we got down a few hundred metres, one of the, the father of the boy came running up to me and he said, quick, 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 Mr McFarlane. Come, my boy has been bitten by a snake. Now, this was deadly. And so I thought, well, we've got a load of stuff on the back of the truck. We have to get rid of all of that because it's too heavy to put him down and go back down to the village. And so we unloaded all of that and I went down and saw the boy and apparently he had been lying on the riverbank. He had been, a, he'd been swimming and then come back and was lying on the beach and near the little river we had, and as he was sleeping there, a snake had come over him and he felt something and he moved and the snake bit him on the leg. Now, I don't know what sort of a snake it was, but it was pretty deadly as far as I was concerned. So we administered to him, we put the tourniquet on his leg, put him in the back of the truck and raced him back down to the beach, put, got the boat out again, which took a few minutes, and then went across to the island, to the Cupiano, and there we had to t carry him up to the hospital. And again, he was saved by the quick action of ours, and the Lord had saved him again to do a special work. Now, this boy, going back a little bit, had had polio when he was a young lad, and he was crippled, and so he couldn't run very fast. He could just walk, but he was a very good student. He was saved, he came back to school, we put him through grade six, and then I don't think he went to Cambu. He didn't go down to the high school down there, the college, and but he went back into the village. But God again answered our prayer from that snake bite. Mm. What about the time the snake crawled over your boot while you're driving in the Land Rover? This is a, a snake. Well, this is a story regarding me. Our house was up on top of the hill and we had a very rough road going down to the school and the Land Rover was a very, very old one with lots of holes in it and you could see down, when you put your foot down, you could see right through to the floor for the, for the, um, where the brake, where brake pedals were. This particular day, I don't know why, but I looked down from where I was driving and as I looked down, there I saw a black thing, a snake coming up out of one of the holes, crawling across my boot and I froze and it went down the other side and went out another hole and it disappeared. As soon as the tail had gone, I stopped the vehicle and I jumped out that way and I think the snake went the other way because I looked underneath that vehicle and I couldn't see any snake or any sign of it. 
but I do know that my heart was running about 99% more than it should have been because it was a very frightening experience for me. Hmm. Now, we've got a couple of more frightening experiences to tell about too. Better Karma near Honiara and the Solomon Islands was less isolated than the other places that you'd been, but you had to contend with an earthquake there that did some significant damage. Tell me about that. Back on Musa, we had earthquakes, so I knew a little bit about them. Now we're at Betty Karma, and I was teaching grade or Form 3, or Form 2 English, and I was in class, and all of a sudden the whole place was completely quiet. No breeze, no wind. It was dead quiet, and I thought to myself, there's an earthquake coming, boy, look out. And sure enough, only a few seconds later, she started to wobble, the school started to go, the kids were absolutely terrified, they went everywhere, they were gone, I couldn't find them. And I tried to get from my place 100 metres to my house. It was like the waves of the sea. You'd put your foot down and you'd go down and then you'd come up and then you'd go down. And every time I tried to walk, I'd fall over into the next hollow. Eventually I got across to the house and there I found my wife under the table with the dog with some of my things in the house. The house was an absolute mess. I looked in the kitchen. The kitchen, the refrigerator had come open and everything was on the floor. Eggs, everything was all on the floor. The stove had opened up and actually the stove had fallen over onto the side. Fortunately, we didn't have a fire in it. And then the whole place was a mess. And then I walked down the long uh, hall down to our bedroom you could move down and the whole house was shaking. We were on seven-foot pile, uh, poles or pipes underneath us. And every one of those um, things underneath there holding up the house, the stumps, were broken. There were something like 20 of them and every one were cracked or broken. That house had to be repaired and I was sent away. We went up to Colin Winch's house. He, he was on furlough. And so we stayed in his house for six weeks while our house was being repaired. But you could get down to the bedroom and you could actually shake the whole house from the walls, but they were cracked. And after the first shake, I decided I'd better take the car out and put it onto the the school oval. And all the cars were out there from all the teachers. And the next shake came and the bricks that were on the end of that house went boom, right onto where our car would have been. It would have been smashed. So God blessed us, even though we lost a lot of property there that day, but we were saved. Our lives were saved and there was no damage done to the children. But the church, my wife was watching it, and the the church was on the end, and then it would go out and it opened up and then it'd go back, open up and then it'd go back. And so that church there was, was saved. They had to fix it up again with a few nails and things pulled together again. You also experienced an earthquake on Musa Island back in the early days. What was that like? We hadn't been through an earthquake ever before. Oh, we had been over in New Zealand when we were on holidays to get a little tremor. But this one, they always happen at night time. I don't know why. The one at Betty Karma didn't, but this one did. It was a horrifying thing. About 12 o'clock at night and all of a sudden you could hear this thunder. And I thought, there's a storm coming. And I said to Bet, there's something coming. I don't know what it is. And then we could hear the huge noise coming down the mountain. And then when the whole house started to shake, we're up again on our 
posts underneath our house, about seven feet high. And we're up there and we had a long house. We had three bedrooms and, a, and another room. And then there's a the house at the other end, like a big kind of an L shape. And the whole of that house was just shaking. Again, we tried to come down the hallway. We couldn't. We were on our hands and knees trying to crawl along because the thing was going up and down and sideways. A big rock came down, a huge rock would have been bigger than this building, or not this building, this room we're in now. And it rolled down and it went into the sea. Another huge tree came down, all the trees in the, up in the mountain all came down. And then I couldn't see any girls. They'd all gone. They'd grabbed their Bibles. They were next door to our house with a little playground between. And they'd all run into the bush. I don't know where the boys went. I think they were the same. They'd gone too because when I went to school next day, there was nobody there. They'd all disappeared into the bush. They were all so terrified. But that was a Richter scale of about seven, I think it was around about that size. Hmm. I can't help but feel, as I've listened to your stories today, that you've had a constant watch care over your life. Milton, would you like to close our program today with a prayer for our listeners? Our Heavenly Father, I thank you that we've been able to tell these stories. I pray to the Lord that anybody who, who, who are listening to this will get understand what we went through. But there was one thing above all. God was with us everywhere we went and whatever we did. We were in God or Jesus' presence all the time. Prayer was our main thing. And I thank you for listening to my stories today. Amen. Amen. Milton, thank you. I look forward to our next conversation. Remember to tune in next time as I continue my conversation with Milton McFarlane. Bye for now and God bless you and keep you. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. We're going to listen to Pierre Vonda Westhusen sing You'll Never Walk Alone Now.
Come to me. 